your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Basco, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we are excited to talk to Josh Brown about social identity theory and political polarization. Josh is a social psychologist and postdoctoral research associate in the School of Human Ecology. He is interested in understanding groups, processes, and intergroup relations in applied settings like politics. In particular, he studies what motivates people to identify with groups, self-uncertainty, and identification's effects on behavior, cognition, performance, and health in politics. Josh is the co-author of a fascinating article entitled Extreme Party Animals, Effects of Political Identification and Ideological Extremity. We wanted to talk to Josh today about the psychological mechanisms at play that might help us understand why our political environment has become so polarized, and asked him if there are any remedies social psychology might offer for us. Thanks so much for being with us, Josh. Let's jump right into our questions. Let's begin with a little bit about your pathway to UW-Madison and your interest in studying group processes and intergroup relationships. Maybe give us a high-level overview of your academic path, your career path, and how you ended up in Madison. Sure. Um, so I, I grew up in Utah, um, and Utah is a very interesting state in the Union. We have the only state with a majority uh, Mormon population. Um, and I grew up Mormon and ended up leaving the Mormon church. And when I did that, right at the beginning of my, of my college career, I shifted from wanting to be a theater major to wanting to understand psychology because I wanted to understand kind of the things that were at play going on because I felt myself going through a lot of psychological turmoil, a lot of differences and things. And in particular, I got interested in social psychology because it describes things like prejudice and discrimination and, um, how it is that groups act towards each other and what it means to be in the minority of a group compared to in the majority of a group. And for the first time in my life, I had shifted from being in the majority, you know, being a Mormon living in Utah, to being in the minority, to being a non-Mormon living in Utah. So I wanted to understand that experience a little bit better. Um, I finished my studies at Utah Valley University and then I went to Texas Tech University where one of the preeminent uh, researchers who studied group processes and intergroup relations, Zach Homan, had a lab um, and I was really excited to get into it because I had cited his research before in some of the other projects that I did. Um, And so it was a perfect fit. He was looking for someone to get in. I applied for the position. He accepted me for it. And so I moved to Lubbock, Texas. And so I moved from one of the most conservative counties in the country, Utah County, to the other most conservative county in the country, (laughs) Lubbock County. And so in all of these situations, I found myself kind of a little bit in the minority. Um, I tend to be much further left than most folks are. Um, I tend to be a little bit more outspoken about like social justice issues and things like that. And living in Utah County and living in Lubbock County meant that I was um, kind of in this weird face-off with the rest of the community. Um, So we started studying politics. Uh, This was right after Trump was elected in 2016. Um, We were trying to uh, understand kind of 
how and why all of these political theorists and everyone were so wrong and expected that Hillary Clinton was going to take a derisive blue wave crushing over everything else. And suddenly you had Donald Trump, who was in the who was in the office. Um, so we were looking at politics. We were trying to understand politics through the sense of intergroup relations. Um, that research was really productive, really cool. Um, but I wanted to understand things in a little bit of a larger time scale. And my position up here at UW-Madison allowed me to do that. We have data that's been collected over a lot longer period of time. So instead of looking at one-time little surveys, we are able to look and follow people for a longer period of time. And that's how I ended up at UW-Madison, was wanting to understand things that happen over a longer period of time. Fascinating. Uh, now let's move into our questions about the role that social identity theory plays in helping us understand how political polarization works. For this discussion, we'll focus on the United States, but the theory seems to apply to partisan group identity and inter-party processes more generally as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the idea of social identity theory is meant to be a kind of like basic theory is what it's called, as opposed to an applied theory. And the idea of it is that it's meant to apply to every single human being in some way. And some people it attaches more strongly than others, and some people it kind of like sits a little bit, takes a back seat, but it affects us all to some degree. And the basic premise of social identity theory is that when we identify with a group, when we think of ourselves as a member of we and us, kind of that collective identity, um, that changes how we act, that changes how we behave, that changes how we even think and feel about things. Because suddenly we're using intergroup emotions instead of these personal emotions. It's not I'm angry, it's we're angry. It's not I'm afraid, it's we're afraid. And that distinction between I to we, that distinction between me to us, is a really powerful one. When it comes to politics, um, we see people starting to identify with their groups a lot more. People are thinking of themselves as a we member of a political party more often, uh, more often now. And when it comes to polarization, when it comes to these things, these group identities, especially because we only have these two political parties, they become so salient. It becomes such an effective way to identify you know, who are you? Well, I am a scientist, I am blank. But if you really want to get simple, you can have just two categories and say, who are you? Well, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. It becomes a really easy way for us to identify ourselves and to identify the people around us, especially because our political leaders have made it so that they seem so extremely opposite of one another. It becomes almost a battle of good and evil. Like you hear uh, folks like Alex Jones say that, you know, Infowars entire thing was there's a war on your mind, right? So if there's a war going, you want to be on the right side. And so if you have these two dichotomous labels that are able to separate one another, these two collective identities that you can identify as, well, you're never going to identify as one. You're always going to identify as another. And that simplifies things really easily. And human beings want things to be simple. We want to fit into like easy categories, easy boxes. And so if you have just two boxes, you can fit the entire world really simply into these two boxes, or at least the entire nation into them. Um, you see this also, like you mentioned, uh, we're going to focus on Americans. My wife is not an American, and it confuses people when they ask her, they're like, oh, you know, what are your political beliefs? And she's like, oh, I don't really, I can't vote. I can't do this. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I can't be either or. I can't identify as like a party member. And it confuses people. They like, what, how, well, what are your political beliefs? Like, what do you, they try and categorize her. They try and fit her into one of these boxes. It's really fascinating to me. I'm going to follow up just for your thesis. 
you're not going to ask it because I think you're arguing that there are people there is an individual level predisposition to have a there is a binary world view a like a Manichaean world view, world view. I'm just curious what the research says there and what your take on it I mean, so being a social psychologist, us and personality psychologists are on really opposite side of the nature versus nurture debate. I'm on the nurture side of things. Personality is much more on the nature side of things, these individual differences. Um, We know that there is a personality trait that makes you open to new experiences. Um, That's like kind of one of the big overarching umbrella ones. Um, and related to that is things like authoritarianism, um, right-wing authoritarianism, especially like if you believe that people should listen to other people, that there's a natural hierarchy and things and stuff like that. So we know that those individual differences are related to where people shift into their politics. If they're more supportive of right-wing politicians, they're more supportive of left-wing politicians. Um, in terms of like a binary worldview individual difference, I could see that being something that would cause you to be more like invested in politics, especially invested in something like American politics, where you want this black or white thinking, you want this us versus them thinking. But I think also that's just an inherent human thing. We categorize ourselves into groups of us versus them pretty easily. in some of the earliest experiments of social identity theory done during the 70s, um, they brought children in and they gave them um, cards and they basically separated them into groups arbitrarily. They said like, your group, you know, A, your group B. Who is group A, who is group B, it doesn't matter. There's nothing that is different between your groups. We just flipped a coin and set you on one side or the other. Even doing that, even showing them the coin flips, even saying you just have been randomly separated into one group or another, people will try and benefit their own group. They would allocate more resources in like a game of Monopoly. They would give money to their, to their, um, to their group members. And, and this was the interesting thing, they would go out of their way to hurt the opposite group, to like punish the opposite group. And so I would say it probably is an individual difference where there is something within us that kind of drives this and it might be stronger in some people or weaker in the others, but it's within all of us. Thank you for that. That's really interesting. I've been learning a little bit about um, Eric Oliver out of University of Chicago writes a lot about how how intuitive an individual is can affect how much they're going to adhere to that group mm-hmm. level identity. If you are someone who thinks more logically, then you may not think as extremely about your group, but also stating that almost all of us fall into the middle of being intuitive and being logical just as a part of human nature. Those are sort of intrinsically a part of all of us. That reminds me of information processing research that talks about there are two ways of processing information. There's essentially a more difficult way, which requires us to be more logical, more Mm -hmm. careful, more parsing apart. It says, here's a fact, here's a fact. How do these facts relate to one another? How do these facts relate to other things? more effortful processing and then there's a simpler version of processing where you just trust your gut mm-hmm. more intuitive and so it reminds me a lot of what you're mentioning that eric oliver is talking about thank you you're giving me a lot of ideas on what to work on later <laughs> let's move on to your article looking at extreme party animals and the effects of political identification and ideological extremity In the past, social scientists have stressed that the American identity can sort of supersede partisan identity in our thinking, but your article kind of points out that this has shifted and now individuals seem to be stressing their individual level partisan identities more so. 
What evidence for that do psychologists find and why do you think it's shifted in this way? Well, in terms of evidence, one of the reasons that we started doing this work, uh, it, why Zach Homan started doing this work was he had originally used the American identity as kind of like a catch-all. He could, when especially doing online studies, you want something that you know people are gonna identify as. And so if I was doing a study on UW-Madison campus, I could use the Badger identity as a way to guarantee everyone has at least some vested interest in being a Badger. We're students here, people pay money, you know, it is what it is. Um, you could probably even do that in the entire Madison community. People probably have some sort of attraction or some sort of good positive feelings about UW-Madison. Um, or if you wanted to go further, the Packers or something like that. But the larger you get and the larger net that you try and cast, you have to like pick a bigger and bigger identity that more and more people are going to identify with. So what they used to do in research was they would use the American identity. And when you would do these intergroup experiments, you would compare the American identity against, say, the French or against Russians or against the Chinese or against some other identity that you could oppose people to. And you would say, oh, are you going to give more benefits to the Americans or are you going to give more benefits to the Chinese? And typically in the experiments, you would find that people would go out of their way to punish the Chinese and people would go out of their way to benefit the Americans if they were an American. Um, that research started to fall apart, though, because people were not strongly identifying as Americans anymore. We started to find that, um, especially in the research that they were doing was that this American identity wasn't having as strong of effects as it used to have. People were not trying to benefit the Americans as much as they used to be doing. Um, and so in one experiment, they had included a political identification measure and they said, okay, are you Republican or Democrat? How much do you identify? And they noticed that people would rank their American identity pretty much in the middle, like around the average of the scale for so one to 10 to be like a five but they would rank their identity as a Democrat or Republican much higher than that, like a seven, eight, or nine. Um, and that kind of cued off my advisor. He was like, oh, maybe I should start using political identities to this as well. Have people, when they first start the survey, say, oh, are you Democrat or Republican? And then f you know, fill that in within the th survey. So it started out as this research methodology thing. We needed to get the effects. And to get the effects, we needed people who identify strongly with some group. And the strongest group people were identifying with was their political identities. Now, this was during 2016, so we had this expectation that it was because of the politics at the time, it was because of the national election, that people's political identity was more salient than their American identity. And the idea was if we had gone back to, like, say, 2001, right after 9-11, people's American identities would have superseded everything. Um, and... What we're finding is that there's less and less 9-11s and there are more and more big contentious elections that are happening. There's not these things that are uniting American folks together. And so in our research as we've been doing it, it went from being this kind of like practical reason of trying to get good research results to being this like research question of why is it that people are identifying so strongly with one another? Um, and I think it has shifted because of leadership. Um, leadership of these political parties and the way that leadership is utilizing the political divide between folks. In the same way that I had brought up in the classic social identity theory experiments that people would benefit their own group and they would hurt the outgroup and in fact would go out of their way to hurt the outgroup even if it meant the in-group doesn't get any sort of benefit. We're seeing that at play in the political realm as well. People are polarizing not because they are um, in support of their own party, 
it's an opposition to the opposite party is what we're seeing. Um, and so people are going out of their way to say they're, they're using a negative prototype to define themselves. Instead of saying, I am a Republican because I'm fiscally conservative, because I'm, you know, a supporter of, you know, anti-abortion or abortion legislation because of these things. Instead, we're identifying ourselves by what we're not. You know, I am a Republican because I'm not a Democrat. And a Democrat is all of these evil, terrible, horrible things. It's like during the Cold War when someone would be like, oh, I'm not a, I'm an American because I'm not a communist. Well, what is a communist? Doesn't matter. It's everything an American is not. <laughs> right? It's this negative stereotype. It's this negative prototype that I use to then define myself as something else. And I think because of that, we're starting to heap all of the evils of the world and all of the things that we oppose onto our political opponents. And so it becomes all the easier to identify with your party when the other party is so vilified. And when you're seeing it vilified, when you turn on the news and you're seeing it vilified, when I pull up the internet and I see it vilified, when I'm looking at, you know, whatever I follow, whether it be The Blaze or MSNBC or something else, and I watch comedians who are making fun of my political opponents, and I'm watching, um, you know, Tucker Carlson tell me, or Alex Jones tell me that they're going to be, like, eating babies and stuff like that. Like, it becomes really extreme, and it becomes literally a battle of good and evil. It becomes binary. And when it's binary, it's really easy to categorize myself even more effectively. So I think that's what that shift is. Mm-hmm. And so the paper focuses on effective polarization. Can you give us an idea of what effective polarization is? And can you tell us a little bit more about the research questions that you addressed in your paper and why the focus on effective polarization is so important in contemporary politics? Yeah. So when we talk about group processes, we don't really talk about polarization by itself. Polarization by itself is just being drawn to the pole. And in a bipolar experience where you have two separate poles, it doesn't really make sense because you can't be drawn to both poles at the same time. And so as a Republican, I can be polarized towards the Republican pole, but that doesn't really mean anything in relation to another party. Whereas a Democrat, I can be drawn towards the, I can be polarized towards the Democrat poll or something else. Um, and so when we talk about affective polarization, we're talking about that kind of process that I was talking about before. It's pushing away your opponents while drawing towards your, your allies. Um, it's saying, I am angry, and it typically is affected, as in the emotions that are associated with it. I love my side, I hate the opposite side. I am happy for my side, I am angry or sad for the opposite side. Um, And so it's these kind of like binary oppositions against one another. And that's what that affective polarization kind of signifies, is that there is some sort of like opposition that this is in relation to, as opposed to typical polarization where it's just being drawn towards your own group. This has the connotation that there is another group that you're in relation to. Um, In terms of contemporary politics, I think that affective polarization is so important because it means that this is not something that is happening up here in the head. It means it's something that's happening in the body. It's a visceral experience that people are having. Emotions are really hard to control. Um, you go to therapy typically to learn how to manage ex- manage emotions, right? Like you, you don't go because you're in control of your anger, or in control of your anxiety. You go because you're out of control of them because they're controlling you. And that's what I think is happening when we see this affective polarization is the emotional reactions that people have towards their political opponents 
are nearly uncontrollable. You know, if my grandparents heard that there was some leftist on a podcast, they would get super upset about it. But when they hear that I'm on a podcast, they're totally fine about it. And so it's this idea that their political opponent like draws this intense visceral reaction out of them that a personal opponent, someone that they actually know and feel, doesn't draw that same sort of thing from. And so I think that these are really visceral emotions that we're dealing with. These are really visceral things. It's gone beyond the idea that we can like explain our way out of this hole because the whole is something that our body is experiencing, that our body is feeling. I guess I love that example of you go to therapy to learn how to regulate your emotions, but what is sort of the effect of these political emotions in a landscape that profits off of your sort of anger? So like your party doesn't necessarily want you to learn how to mitigate those emotions because it aids them in their fundraising and their electoral victories. Oh, it means that they want to whip you into a frenzy. Yes. You know, I I subscribe to, um, I really like getting um, fundraising emails from folks. I think that they're hilarious to read and I think they're always interesting. (laughs) It helps me get like a a key of what things are. So I'm like subscribed to the... uh, the Joe Biden ones, I'm subscribed to the Donald Trump ones, I'm subscribed to some of the political leaders here like Ron Johnson, Mandela Barnes. Um, And it's interesting to see how they use um, different things to do it because it's all very feeling oriented language because they know that this is gonna be a more effective way to raise money. When you're thinking with your emotions, your wallet's gonna come out a lot quicker because you're going to be feeling like it's a battle between good and evil. But to do that, you have to keep things at a very broad level. Mm-hmm. Again, my grandparents are not going to go to war with me. We're family. We love each other. We care about each other. We might disagree about our politics, but at the end of the day, we're family. But my family will go to war with a leftist. My family will go to war with a Democrat, with one of those, uh, with one of those devil dog folks who are like trying to like kill babies, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why it gets so real, so quick, is because it's not real. It's because it separates itself. It becomes this moral panic. I mean, I think that's what the conflict is, is it's meant to be a moral panic. We're replacing a lot of what we saw during the Cold War, where we were vilifying the Russians, vilifying the the commies, vilifying the the Ruskies and stuff like that. We're replacing that with conflict against one another because it makes profit. And I think that profit motive is at the center of this. I also think that, do you think that's why a lot of these fundraising ads call out democracy as a very broad issue of what's being attacked? And Because I feel like democracy is a term that most Americans have a very positive connotation with. We hold that very true to our identity, that democracy is the way to run this government. So saying that that's under attack by an opposing party, do you think that that rhetoric has been effective in the past couple of years? Yeah, I think that that's definitely rhetoric you're seeing. Donald Trump right now is using justice, that they're attacking the fabric of justice within the nation um, by going after him with all of the indictments and everything. Um, you see these kind of principles, the truth, justice, the American way, you know, everything Superman fights for. Like those are the things that you're going to be able to kind of centralize on because they're very vague. They don't really effectively means something um and so you can spin it any way um george orwell talked about in his book 1984 this idea of true speak right this idea of using language that is so specific but also so general that it loses all meaning and it can mean anything that you want it to and i see that in the language that we use and i think it um specifically is effective because these words become meaningless 
but they attribute whatever meaning that we have. So when Donald Trump says democracy is in danger, that's one thing. When the Washington Post says democracy dies in darkness, which is their motto, mm -hmm. that's another thing. What do those things mean? It's up to us to project whatever we feel, whatever Josh Brown feels that to mean, I can project that into it. And because I can project it, because Donald Trump isn't actually saying anything, I can believe that Donald Trump supports whatever I believe. Even though he didn't even really lay out anything specific to support. Exactly. Even though nothing of any substance is coming out of the coming out of anyone's mouth. Interesting. We are curious about the term dehumanization of rivals when you use it in your study. This dehumanization of people based on their party identification feels very relatively new? Question mark. We didn't use to dehumanize people of differing parties. How prevalent do you think dehumanization is among strong partisan identifiers? Well, um, I have a colleague, her name is Olivia Colgen, who studies dehumanization pretty specifically. Um, she did her dissertation on dehumanization and continues to study that um, at the university she works at in Oregon. Um, one of the things that she has found is that dehumanization is relatively common. Um, it's a really easy process for us to try and uh, dehumanize our rivals because it takes the one thing that we are all associated with, the one superordinate identity that we all share, being a human being, and it breaks it apart. And typically you can dehumanize people in one of two ways. You can either animalistic dehumanize per a person where you take someone and you compare them to an animal. You know, oh, you're a sheep. Oh, you're a rat. Oh, you're a dog. You know? Or you dehumanize people mechanistically, where you turn them into a mechanism, into a machine. You say, oh, they're robots. Oh, you know, this is often used against uh, folks from East Asia. Oh, those Chinese, they're like machines. They're able to like, you know, just work like machines. Or he's a puppet. Or he's a puppet. Yeah, no, that's a great mechanistic dehumanization. Um, and by doing it itself, and when you're fighting for humanity, anything goes especially if the thing that you're fighting against is not a human being. And so I see this language being used more, more and more. One of the more interesting ones that we're seeing right now is the use of the term non-playable character or NPCs. This is an interesting new dehumanization that comes from video games where you're mechanistically dehumanizing someone and you're saying they're not even a real person. Mm -hmm. They're not even like engaging in the world. Like they're, you're free to mow them down which is what you're supposed to do with an NPC when you're playing a video game. You just, you can use them, you can abuse them, you can shoot them, you can destroy them, you can set their house on fire, it doesn't matter because they're not real people. Yeah. Um, From a generation of GTA players. Exactly, and Call of Duty players and stuff. There's a Call of Duty mission where you go into a Russian airport and you shoot up the airport. Like, playing that as a kid, for me, like, was a formative experience in my brain of, like, holy cow, what can I do in a video game? I can do anything, right? And now we're seeing that generation of people coming up and starting to talk about things, engaging in politics, engaging in this thing. And we're seeing those terms start to be used. And I think that it's easy, to, it, it makes it easy to oppose your, your enemy when you dehumanize them. You know, if you're just fighting a bunch of rats, if you're fighting a bunch of animals, if you're fighting a bunch of dogs, if you're fighting a bunch of machines, it's a lot easier for you to do whatever you need to do. Um, and it turns them faceless, too, is the other thing. It, it, again, gets away from it thinking about my grandparents opposing me, their grandson, to my grandparents opposing a faceless horde. 
of animals, of machines, of something else. And so I think that it's getting more common to use this dehumanization language um, because it's effective. Though we have many instances, if you look at any propaganda of like World War One, World War Two, we've been using dehumanization forever. We just typically would use it against our opponents. We're now seeing that our opponents are ourselves. Yeah. Just a comment on that. Okay, I want to make sure I understood this right before I ask this question, I guess. Sure. In the study, did you have a slider, zero to a hundred, uh-huh. and then it's the ascent of man under it? Yep. So like we're talking like ancestors like basically like yeah evolutionary ancestors yeah like humans and people like people seriously rated other people less i just can't (laughs) something about that really stood out to me when i read that in the study because that just kind of seems weirdly like unfathomable to me i I don't yeah that you would actually take a person and you would say oh you are less evolved than another person and attach like a numeric like the image and like a numerical value to that it's insane that 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 measure is one of the more contentious measures Uh that we use because it feels deeply uncomfortable yeah but people do it people did it in a statistically significant way yeah on both sides and this is something that is important to recognize is that this is happening on both sides of the political aisle um and I think that that does not speak to the fact that, like, both sides are wrong. You know, everything is, you know, I'm a enlightened centrist. What about both sides, you know, type thing. I think that that speaks to the power of rhetoric. And it speaks to the power of the opposition that we're seeing. I think it's playing off of one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was just really shocking to me. Oh, yeah. That was so interesting. Um, moving on. How do you think that social media and online communities can contribute to the formation and reinforcement of group identities in politics? And are these platforms exacerbating or mitigating political polarization? I would definitely first off say that they're exacerbating political polarization. I don't think that there is any question in any researcher's mind that these things are making stuff worse. Um, And I think part of it is because on the one hand, When you communicate with people on your side, you're communicating much more, much more quickly, much more effectively, and you're able to do it in a, I mean, so much of us spend so long on online that it allows us to communicate way more than we would be communicating. You know, back in the seventies when my grandpa wanted to be a political partisan, like he had to go to parties where people were doing things. He had to go to like rallies. He had to go to these things where he had to actively engage with something. It was time consuming. It was something that took a lot out. And he could maybe do that maybe once a week, you know, without like interfering with his work and with his with his personal life. Um, for me, if I want to engage politically, I just have to pull up my phone and I can do that for a couple seconds, you know, like a minute, minute and a half, like every 20 minutes if I wanted to. And so... Not only are we engaging more often, but we're engaging, I think, a lot larger of a volume than we were engaging before. And so that's with people who we agree with. We're also engaging with people who we disagree with. And we're engaging with people who we disagree with in a faceless way. By having that facelessness associated with it. I mean, yes, there are the pictures on Facebook or there, you know, I can see somebody's profile picture or something else. But in reality, I'm engaging with them through... A device that I barely have to look at 
you know, I can just get myself angry about it. And that typically is what we try and do online, is we try and inflame emotions as much as possible. And the algorithms are designed to get us engaged as much as we can. And the things that engage us are going to be strong emotions. And so they're going to show us the most extreme stuff that we can, either the stuff that we're going to agree with and we're going to be like, hell yeah, or the stuff that we disagree with and we're going to be like, hell no. They want the hell there. They don't want us to just be like, yeah, no. They want us to be like, hell yeah, hell no. Because we're going to engage with it longer. You know, if I get into a war of words with someone who I disagree with on Facebook and I start, you know, angrily going and I start checking every like couple minutes to see if they responded and then they respond and then I, you know, look at them and I, you know, craft a new perfect response and we get into a debate. That's something that is increasing engagement and Facebook likes that. And I think that's something to remember is that it's not the level of engagement. It's not the direction, the valence of the engagement that matters. It's just how much engagement is there. And so these, prof these platforms are made to increase that engagement. And polarization increases engagement. So it's kind of like the saying, there's no such thing as bad press. There's no such thing as bad engagement. Exactly. I mean, Facebook was found guilty in helping to progress a, you know, a genocide mm -hmm. because it helped inflame people who were sharing these stories and doing this thing. Like, that's as bad of engagement as you could possibly have in terms of valence. But in terms of level, a lot of people were pretty passionate about things and they were engaging pretty, pretty phenomenally with it. So to that point of the way that media conglomerates might sort of exacerbate um, sort of the rhetoric that's going on for their own engagement, how do you think that applies to our political leaders and parties and how do they exploit group identities to gain support and promote their agendas? I think so there's a social identity theory of leadership and the basic idea is that a leader is the person that is the prototype of the group. The leader is the person that you look to and you say, how do I act as a member of this group? So if I'm a Republican, I look to Donald Trump and I say, Donald Trump is my leader. What does Donald Trump do? Oh, that's what I should do too. Um, and the more clear that the leader is, the more obvious their behavior, their thoughts, their feelings are, the easier it is for me as a group member to know how I should do. It makes things simpler. It makes that category clearer for me. Um, we also know from the social identity theory of leadership that a leader has the ability to kind of direct the group, to change the way that the group thinks. So if the group looks at the leader and says to the leader, hey, what should we think? What should we do? How should we feel? And the leader says, oh, you should think this way. You should feel this way. You should act this way. The group is going to follow the leader up to a certain amount. Obviously, you can't completely change the meaning of the group. If Donald Trump were to show up and be like, I'm Muslim now. Everyone should join Islam. Like that would be too far for the group. But if he says, I am, you know, America should be a Christian nation, even though that is pretty far outside of the realm of what Americans believe. And, you know, there's a separation of church and state. A lot of Republicans are going to go, hell yeah, we agree with that. And I think it's that same sort of thing. It's the engagement that you're trying to drive from people. And so as a leader, you want to whip people into a frenzy. And the easiest, people to, the easiest way to whip people into a frenzy is to direct them against an opponent. And that's the power of the leader is they get to choose who the opponent is. 
And so on one hand, you know, you might have a leader, let's take a Republican leader, and he says, oh, our opponents are the people, uh, the migrants at the borders. We have a horde of migrants who are going to come and destroy America and change our way of life. They're our enemy. And then you have another Republican leader who says, oh, our enemy is liberals because they're trying to bring their woke, you know, whatever woke is thing into our classrooms and like change America. You know, in both situations, you've directed it towards a different enemy for your own purpose. And we're now defining ourselves in a different way. As an American, I'm a, not a migrant. What does that mean? Well, that's typically coded language. Um, that means I'm a white person. I'm, you know, someone who was born here, someone with a job, someone who like is, you know, all of these things. On the other hand, if I say we're against the woke mob, you know, that is a new set of like expectations and like beliefs for me. And so depending on who your opponent is at the time, you can direct people to think about themselves in a different way. And are there certain demographic factors like race, ethnicity, religion, gender that play a more significant role in shaping those political group identities and polarization? And like why or why not might that be? I think it depends on the on the leaders and what they're trying to do. So in some cases, it's going to be more effective to bring up a racial identity, right? And to target, say, migrants and say, oh, our migrants are... We don't want the we don't want them here, you know, type of thing, and then put out some racist dog whistles to try and kind of imply that there should be a white supremacy, a group. Um, but that only appeals if you're trying to appeal to people who are white. In other cases, you might try and appeal to the idea of kind of the model minority, right? And you might say, oh, we are wealthy and successful and that's what makes us good is because we're hard workers hard workers are what we are we are not lazy bums on the street doing welfare and whatever you know and so that appeals to a different group of folks and so i think it depends on who you're trying to appeal to is going to be which of these buttons that you press because at the end of the day it's very multifaceted it's kind of like a rug and you're pulling on different threads each of these threads are woven into each other i mean we know that the white supremacy is related to class consciousness is related to um, the religion that people have, it's related to the patriarchal, you know, issues that we face. And so by pulling these different threads and saying, oh, we, we prefer traditional marriage, you know, that's pulling one thread or, oh, we're opposed to um, immigrants coming in and taking our jobs. That's pulling another thread. And so it depends on who you want to appeal to. Religion, for example, is a big one to appeal to if you want to get the evangelicals fired up. Mm -hmm. But if you don't care about the evangelicals at that point, if you're somewhere else, you might focus instead on immigrants. When I was in Texas, they didn't really talk about abortion, but they talked a lot about the southern border because that's what Texans cared about. National politicians, they have to talk about all of it all at once, which is why I think you see their rhetoric vary so wildly depending on where they go to. Mm -hmm. What strategies or practices can help bridge the gap between different identity groups in this political landscape? And does your work suggest any possible pathways towards depolarization? Yeah, um, I think something that's important to remember is the idea that the more complex your identity is, the more difficult it is for you to have an opponent that you actively work against. Um, and so for a lot of people, binary categories make it really, really easy to fight your opponent. You know, I am a, I am a Republican, and so it's easy to be opposed to the Democrats, right? Um, 
if we can leave behind some of these binary identities and we can start to focus on other identities, I am a scholar, I am an academic, I am a son, I am a, these things. The more hyphens that we can put into our thing, the more difficult it is for us to target someone to be our opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also the idea of rapidly shifting through identities is going to be important too. Um, something we talk about in social identity theory is the idea of identity centrality. And so if an identity is really central to you, then it's going to be salient in a lot of different places. And so for, say, my grandparents, my grandpa has told me many times that his identity as a Republican is really central to his core of being. That's who he is, is he is a Republican. Because of that, that identity is going to come up over and over and over again. It's going to play a role in a lot of different situations that he's in. And so if you can push more and more identities into a person and help them to transfer between different identities and get away from one single identity being the central core of their being, then you're going to have more success with that. Mm. Because human beings are complex. Um, One of the things about social identity theory is that it's contextual. Depending on different contexts, right now I am Josh Brown, the political psychologist. I was just in a postdoc meeting and I was Josh Brown, the postdoc. I'm, my buddy from Texas is coming up and we're going to go dancing tomorrow night and I'm going to be Josh Brown, the party guy, (laughs) right? Josh Brown, the party guy is much less invested in politics than Josh Brown, the political psychologist is. Yeah. Or Josh Brown, the partner, or Josh Brown, the undergrad was different than Josh Brown, the... Exactly. And so I think recognizing that these identities that we hold, you know, Josh Brown, the leftist, Josh Brown, the leftist, should not be the identity that I carry into every single room. Just like wearing my party clothes is not the way that I should that I should act everywhere that I go. And so different situations oftentimes require us to put on different hats, to wear different identities. Um, If we hold on to one identity too closely, then it starts to permeate everything and you start to see conflict. My grandpa acting like a Republican and acting hardcore about being really far right is going to put him at odds with me because he's going to activate that identity within me, Mm. right? The identity that's in opposition to him, if he treats me like an opponent. And I think that's one of the issues that we see is that so many folks are willing to treat other folks like their opponents, as opposed to treat, like, engage in an identity where they are sharing, you know, a collective uh, collective group together. Do you... Sorry, I know we were just talking about solutions. I don't want to go back to problems, but do you think then that there is kind of a strategy in, an, in a group painting their opponent in a certain way so that when we do add more of those hyphens, get more of those identities, it's associated with a polarization. Like, so for example, if I say I'm a student at UW-Madison, that used to mean I'm just a student at UW-Madison. Right. But now, like when I went home and I was in the grocery line, I told this guy I go to UW-Madison, he's like, oh, don't let them indoctrinate you. Like, they're all liberals. They're like, well, like more, I feel like more and more of these identities are being encompassed under, like, parties and associations with, like, ideas and beliefs and political affiliation. Do you think that, not that it's necessarily intentional, but, like, do you see that happening or is that something that like no i think it and i think it's intentional i think it is intentional i think that it's intentional to paint folks who you know are going to potentially be a solution to this problem people with complex identities you want to paint them with broad strokes you know if i go talk to someone who is an immigrant from mexico they're typically going to be very interesting very engaging you know talk to me about a different worldview than they have 
They're not going to be the stereotype of what somebody is thinking in their head because nobody is the true stereotype. Are you the stereotypical UW student? No, of course not. <laughs> Who is the stereotypical <laughs> UW student? They're, they don't exist. They're not real, mm-hmm. right? The idea that we have in our head is just that, mm-hmm. an idea. And I think that the more that we expose people to a conflict of that idea, the more likely it is that they're going to change their mind and the more likely it is that they're going to work with other people. Um, The problem is you can make it really easy by just making that stereotype, the idea in somebody's head, really strong. By making that idea really strong, they never want to engage with someone. My grandparents don't want to talk to a Mexican immigrant, no matter how interesting that Mexican immigrant might be, no matter how far away from the stereotype it might be. No matter how Republican they may be. No matter how Republican they might be. Yeah, exactly. Like my, my grandparents are going to have the stereotype in their head. And I think that that's intentional. It's why they use vague language to paint, say something like is woke or to say Mm -hmm. that someone is like uh, far right. Like this language doesn't really mean anything. It's a way to try and separate us from our from our political opponents and try and keep us distance from them. Um, because if you never want to engage with them, then you never do engage with them. Because our behavioral intentions affect our actual behavior. I don't want to go talk to some far right person. Even though I might be describing my grandparents. <laughs> I do want to go yeah. talk to my grandparents, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's really interesting. I can reword that question in a way that makes more sense. Sure, no worries. um, (laughs) So going off of that, so is it possible to balance this strong sense of group identity with open-mindedness and a willingness to engage with diverse perspectives? And how can we undo some of that stereotyping and some of those connections? And like, what can we as individuals and as a society do to encourage that balance? I think it's not wrong to have a strong group identity. Like, I identify strongly as a scholar, and that has been incredibly beneficial through me my, my entire scholar, scholarly career. If I don't identify as a scholar, I am not going to succeed on the job market, right? <laughs> I am not going to get tenure, <laughs> right? It is not wrong to have a strong identity. What is wrong is trying to use it in places that I can't go. I really like to go back to that party clothes metaphor that I was using before. Mm-hmm. Like you need to recognize the right places to use this. And if you're and to do that, you need to talk to other people. You know, if I show up to my class and I'm wearing a mesh shirt and everyone is like, what is Josh doing? <laughs> like that's going to be a really good sign for me if I'm paying attention that maybe this was the wrong thing to wear. And so it means that we're going to have to feel comfortable with being wrong some of the time. It means that we're going to have to look to other people and kind of engage with them in an empathic way where we are kind of feeling their emotions. My grandpa has recognized this, and I really appreciate that he does. My wife doesn't like talking about politics. I've recognized this. My grandpa has recognized this. When we engage and we get a little bit too extreme, my wife gets uncomfortable around us and doesn't want to be around us. And we take that cue as a way that, oh, we've gotten too extreme. We've gotten too affectively polarized our feelings are too hot right now we need to cool down and to cool down let's go back to our identity of you as my grandpa and me as your as your grandson you know let's get back into that and so i think having this idea of having a flexibility to the identities that we hold having a flexibility to what it is that we're willing to do and also being able to recognize when we're making other people uncomfortable instead of you know, in kind of a trollish way, enjoying making people uncomfortable is going to be a really big key, like going forward. 
Well, that was our final question, but is there anything that you feel like we haven't touched on that you would like to touch on today? No, I think that that was great. Y'all definitely ran the gamut. <laughs> great. Well, we like to end our episodes with a fun question. We know you've been living in Madison for a couple of years now and that you bike to work sometimes. Do you have any favorite restaurants and or outdoor places that you'd recommend people who are new to Madison to maybe explore? Oh, geez. Um, I definitely love the bike path. Um, the Southwest commuter bike path is what I take from about Elver Park up to campus. And if you take that down and you go to Elver Park, there's a beautiful bunch of paths that you can walk through. Um, it goes to cross-country skiing during the wintertime, but the cross-country ski paths are maintained and you can just walk through them and you can literally just walk through the woods. It's a nice like hour-long experience and you get, get a little bit of nature in the middle of it of Madison. So yeah, Elver Park. That's great. I'll have to check I'll it wait. out. I've yeah. been over there. Yeah. Never yeah, it's on the west side. Not a lot of folks do. Yeah, gotcha. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is super interesting mm-hmm. and helpful for the thesis as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and feel free to reach out if you have any other questions. I'm happy to point resources and stuff like that. Great. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.